0: Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. If we haven't met before, I'm Dave, one of the pastors here. And I want to speak to you today about the topic of redemption. Redemption, that's a funny kind of word, isn't it? Because if someone on the street said, hey, come and uh, I want you to define redemption, how would you say it? It's kind of, there's uh, there's a whole variety of meanings. It's one of those words uh, which can mean a whole bunch of things depending on its context. But I... This did us all a favor, and I looked it up in the dictionary. So let me tell you what redemption means, and it actually connects all the different variety of definitions you ever would have heard of it. Okay, This is what it really means at its core. Redemption means to make right at a price. So think about res- restoration, rejuvenation, replenishment, to, to, to renew something, to make it right again at a price for someone to do something to rescue or rejuvenate or or whatever it is, to, to, to restore something from a negative situation, but it must cost them something. Let me illustrate this for you. It should be obvious, due to my um, towering intellect, high culture, and obvious good taste, that when it comes to God's favourite sport of rugby league, there's only one team I could go for. Who would that be? Now, don't answer. It goes without saying. is the Sydney Roosters. Now, I don't want to bore you too much about... Um, Rugby League, but I've got the microphone, so suffer. Okay, I'm going to. The Sydney Roosters have had a terrible season. Uh, Up until five weeks ago, we were coming 14th. 14th out of 17 teams. Things were very grim, dire, on death's door. It looked all over. There was only one glimmer of hope. We needed to win every game. Okay, that's one thing. But we also required someone to pay a price. We needed another team to implode so badly, so completely to be utterly vanquished in everything that they were doing, that it would provide us with the glimmer of hope that we needed. And in that hour of need sprung forth the South Sydney Rabbitohs. (laughs) Now, do we have any Roosters fans here today? Any? Obviously the best looking people here. Any Rabbitohs fans here today? Okay, everyone else watch your wallets around those people. You know, (laughs) bottom feeding scumbags, Rabbitohs, they're just the worst. Not you guys, just everyone else. The Rabbidos were going very well in contrast to us. However, at the same time as we started to win games, which is exactly what we did, the rabbitos you've never seen an implosion like it. Okay, They kamikaze themselves, destroyed their season's chances. It all came to the last round. Rabbidos versus roosters. Winner takes all. Whoever will win goes to the finals. And the rabbitos they didn't even need us on the field to destroy themselves. They were horrible. Redemption. Life that comes at a price. Do you know how hard I had to work to crowbar that into this sermon? <laughs> okay, it's, that's skill for me to do that. Now, I want to say that redemption, this idea, is right at the core of the Bible. It's one of the key narratives, one of the key themes, one of the key ideas. And I want to put to you today that it's also the key theme, although never mentioned by name, that weaves its way all throughout the story of Joseph. Genesis 37, the reading we had before, open that up there. We're starting uh, the end part of our journey through Genesis this term by looking at the final 15 chapters, which encapsulate the narrative, the story, the the life, the account of one of the best known and best loved people in the Bible, Joseph. Joseph, of course, has retained his fame in the wider world, not only through the Bible, but... um, through the musical, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Has anyone else had to suffer through that before? No, it's a wonderful musical. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Top 100, easily. Um, wonderful musical. However, there's a reason why Joseph has been such a successful musical or his story has been in movies and books and so on. It is a gripping narrative. It's a powerful story. However, here's what I want to offer you today. Over the next few weeks, as we dig deeper into his story... What I want to point out to you is that even though Joseph is right at the center of what's happening, and even though for the following 15 chapters, what we'll see is Joseph after Joseph after Joseph and many of the things unfolding in his life circling around him, the account of Joseph's life here in Genesis is actually not about him at all. It's actually pointing us to someone else. It's pointing us to a redemption that is of far bigger consequence, far bigger meaning, far more wide-reaching power than just the one experienced by Joseph. It's a redemption that involves you and me, and it's right at the core of Joseph's story, but it's very possible that you may have missed it, because it's weaving its way in the background. So what I want to do today is is hopefully fun, uh, enjoyable, but interesting. I want us to look at some of the life of Joseph and then take a step back and see this other story bubbling away behind it, and try and piece some of those threads together in order to really see the true story of redemption going on. Let me show you exactly what I'm talking about here. Come to 37, you've got that hopefully in front of you, and you'll see that this is the beginning of the account of, of Joseph. We read many of the details that we might have heard before, or you may not have heard before. Joseph is a young man. Um, he's one of 12 sons to a father called Jacob, uh, and he has a very complex relationship with his family. You look at verse 3 and verse 4. You'll see it here, well encapsulated. Uh, many of the, uh, the details that we know are sort of summarized here. Verse 3, now Israel, and that's another name for Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Just press pause. This is one of the key themes in Joseph, is the favoritism of Jacob. Joseph is loved more than the others. Why? He had been born to him in his old age. He made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And so the scene, and I say the scene like it's a movie. It's not this is real, but the scene is set. A young man, Joseph, beloved by his father. What has he done to earn that? Nothing. He's just been virtue of being born late in life and being born to Joseph's Jacob's favorite wife. And yet a young man, Joseph, hated by his brothers. What happens next is a tragic course of events. Joseph has a series of dreams, dreams which seem to indicate that one day his brothers and father will bow down before him like an oblivious teenager, which he is. He naively tells these people who hate him about it. And they plot to kill him. Now, that's a hatred, isn't it? It's one thing to hate someone. It's another thing entirely to hate someone. That means you will plot to kill them. And yet that's exactly what happens. A little bit later, Joseph is on his own. He goes, he approaches his brothers. And his brothers, as we heard, they they hatch a plot. We're going to kill him. They throw him down a well. Can you imagine Joseph? He's obviously oblivious, isn't he? He bumbles his way into the situation. And his brothers, who he trusts, Grab him. Imagine this scene. And they throw him into a well. The terror. And yet rather than kill him, they realise they can make money out of it. So they do something even worse possibly. They sell him. And they sell him to slave traders who coincidentally are Ishmaelites. And you'll remember them from Genesis earlier with Abraham. Because Abraham had two sons. The bastard son he had was Ishmael. Uh, and that went off and became its own other tribe. And these were the tribesmen um, who purchased Joseph for, for 50 shekels, however much it is, and then they sell him to the Egyptians. Everything that happens from herein is a result of this incident, this chapter. However, it's possible that by reading that, your focus is on the wrong place entirely. Because you see, this is not a story about Joseph. Look at verse 2. Tells us very clearly. Verse 2 reads: This is the account of Jacob's family line. See, the real action, the real drama, the real heat of this story is not that it is about Joseph. It's about Joseph's family. His kin, if you know that word. It's about his kin. Everything that happens here is in relation to. The family that he's in, because this is no ordinary family. It's no random collection of of people who have no impact on our lives. Believe it or not, this family, this family is at the very center of God's plans for our lives too. To show you what I'm talking about, I I want to take you back a few chapters uh, to to give you a little bit of the family tree, so you understand what's happening. So come back with me here. um, 35, we'll go to 35. 35. Actually, let's go to end of 29. Go to the end of 29 first. Now, what we have here is uh, an outline of the family that Joseph is born into. We've already heard that his father is a guy called Jacob. And I've got a family tree, actually. I'll check that up on the screen so you can see it. Uh, Joseph's dad is a guy called Jacob. And Jacob... Uh, He marries initially two women, Leah, who he doesn't like, and Rachel, who he does like. Now, that's bad enough. However, these two women are sisters. Here's a tip for free. Um, If you're going to marry multiple women, I imagine, sisters is probably not a great idea. Okay, of all the relations that you could, of all the things, complexity, Uh, (laughs) I could imagine. And there is complexity. Uh, Leah, he doesn't like. Rachel, he does love. But both of them want Jacob's affections. They want his heart, his allegiance, his loyalty. And so they conduct something, well, they they approach this, uh, the desire for the heart, in a way that we probably wouldn't. They have a good old-fashioned baby competition, okay? Winner takes Jacob. Most babies wins. And they set out to just have as many children as possible, legitimately, to get Jacob's affections. Now, Leah has an advantage, and the advantage is that Rachel, it turns out, can't Conceive naturally. So Leah has four children Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Rachel comes up with an idea. Huh, I can't have kids, but I'll send in my, my maid servant, Bilhah. It's like she'd never heard of Abraham and Ishmael and Hagar. You know that story? She'd never heard of that. So she sends in Bilhah, and then Bilhah has two children who Rachel kind of owns. They're kind of hers. So four to two are the two competitions, you know? Leah decides, that's a good idea. I'll send in my maidservant, Zilpha. So Zilpha goes in. She has two children. Then Leah decides, you know what? I'm going to go back to it myself. She has two more. And finally, what do we have? Have a look here. Rachel, the favoured wife, the loved wife, finally, around 20 years approximately, after Reuben, the eldest, is born, has Joseph. And then many years after that, Benjamin. And she actually dies in childbirth, um, giving birth to Benjamin. So what do we end up having here? One man, two wives, two concubines, 12 sons. Can you imagine this family WhatsApp group chat? (laughs) You know you've got those relatives who always breach sensitive issues thoughtlessly on family WhatsApp trips, like politics? What are you voting in the voice? Shut up! Don't, we're a powder keg here. Why is it a powder keg? Well, very simply. Because you cannot choose your family, <laughs> which means there's complex relationships always at play. Now, that's the same for all of our families, and yet when you have a family like this, cracks emerge from the very beginning. The, the crack that's emerged like a pebble on a windshield that gets bigger and bigger and bigger is all about Jacob's favouritism. He, he favourites his wives together, he has this great heart for Rachel and not the others. And then he continues that on by, by having a huge heart for Rachel's children, not the other children. Now, one of the devastating results of this is that this treatment ruins his family. It utterly destroys him. Can I get that family tree back up again? Sorry, I should have. If we put that up here. What becomes very clear in the, in the next few chapters, between chapter 29 all the way up to chapter 37 is that Joseph's elder brothers, they turn into truly horrible, wicked men. Um, And that should be obvious, shouldn't it? Because they also try to kill their own brother, because he's a favourite. There's something deeply off there, isn't there? It can feel distant, so it's not real, but... Um, we have details of all of their behavior, or of much of their behavior in some of these chapters. And I won't go into the explicit details because they, it is explicit. But let me give you a flyover summary. Reuben um, uh, sleeps with Bilhah. So here's an affair with his stepmother, um, an incestuous affair with her. Jacob knows about it, but doesn't do anything about it. Simeon and Levi, uh, they there's a sister who's not in the family, she's called Dinah, and she is Uh, Because there's little children present, I'll just say she's assaulted by another man. So Simeon and Levi go and they murder the man and his father and his mother and his brothers and the entire town that he's from. You know, there's revenge and there's revenge. Okay, wicked, truly wicked. Judah, come to chapter 38 for me. See, Joseph's story, I don't know if you've noticed this before, if you've read through it, It There's an interesting sort of um, U-turn at some point. You know, you've got this narrative happening with Joseph. He's sold, end of chapter 37, he's he's in Egypt, he's in Potiphar's household, and then it goes to Judah and Tamar. Have you ever noticed it before? I thought, what the, Moses who wrote Genesis, what were you thinking, man? Just shove that somewhere else. Or even better, when you read the chapter, you're like, did you have to include it here at all? Because this is truly disgusting. I'm not going to read it out. I'm going to let you read it out later. Just don't do it with kids present. Let me summarise it for you though. Um, Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law thinking she's a prostitute. She gets pregnant with his children. He finds out and tries to kill her. He then relents and so she gives birth to twin boys um, who are both his sons And his grandsons simultaneously. Um, This is the level of human being you're dealing with here Um, murderous, idolatrous, um, adulterous, incestuous, hate filled men. And at the very core of it, by the way, is a godlessness. That uh, is not uh, evidently present, you see, but you see, weave its way throughout. They are continually turning their backs on God. They're intermarrying with people who don't know God. And they're bringing fake idols into the household of God that Jacob, Jacob has. Resorted. This is a broken and damaged family. It's a family uh, with deep division and deep brokenness. That is the family into which Joseph is born. Now, you can imagine, therefore, how chapter 37 takes on a different meaning. And later, when they're reconciled, how there's a completely different context at play there as well. The divisions that have taken place are deep, deep, deep. There's a whole lot of resentment and hatred. And yet, as important as it is to grasp that, it's still not the main point of the passage. It's not the main point of the narrative of of Joseph. There's actually something even bigger than that backstory getting on. And what that is, is the motivation, the true motivation, Behind the hatred of the brothers. Come to chapter 35 for me. and I want to show you something uh, that's a clue to us. That the thing that's causing so much jealousy with the brothers and Joseph is not just their father's love. After all, these are men in their late 30s. You think they're still there pining over their daddy's attention? No, no, no. There's something much deeper going on here. Chapter 35. We have this moment where Jacob returns to God at a place called Bethel, sets up an altar, purifies himself, Gets rid of idols finally, you know, sets things right, and then God Himself, He speaks to Jacob in verse ten, and I want you to, I want you to see if you can spot what it is that could actually then become a motivation for the sons in their hatred of Joseph. God said to him, verse ten, "Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel." So He named him. Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. My friends, what is God promising Jacob? Well, like Genesis chapter 12, where he's appeared to Abram, it's a great promise, a covenantal promise that there will be a nation to spring from him, a nation that will bless other nations. But it's more than that. He's promising him not just kin family, he's promising him a king. And not just a king. This isn't just like, oh, you're going to be a royal family because if you look at the ancient world, there's a billion little kingdoms around the place. This is the king. The king who will establish an everlasting kingdom. The king upon whom will rule and reign across the whole world. This is not the story of a man and a family with a lot of brothers. That is not the key point of Joseph. That is not where Moses, the author of Genesis, is pointing us towards. This is a story of kings. This is a story about a battle over a throne. The story in a man in a family with a lot of brothers who want to be king. And so that's the question. Who will be king? Which of these boys will produce an heir, not a spare, but an heir? Who will produce not the Harry, but the William? Who will produce the one who will reign? It might be unlikely to be them, but which family line will take it? This is not the same as, as Jacob. He's got Esau. Esau's off. Jacob's on his own. You know, There's this very direct, clear line. But now there's 12 of them. Who will be king and who will be kin of the king? Now, what happens next in this passage and in, in, in Genesis all the way from end of 29 to, to, Joseph? I want to say to the end of, actually, to the end of Genesis, uh, is detail after detail of each son's qualification or disqualification for the kingship. You see, we're getting these details, and you see it in 35, actually. Look here, uh, 35 verse 22. Okay, you see that in front of you, 35 verse 22. When Israel was leaving in this region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. That's what I referred to before, his stepmother incestuous relationship. Then, have a look what happens next. It's got Jacob has 12 sons, the sons of Leah, mm, the sons of Rachel, mm, the sons of Rachel, so on and so forth. Now, previously in chapter 29, it had listed out these sons chronologically in the order of their birth. But here, it doesn't do that. Why? What's it listing it out? What is the order being presented to us? Not birth order. This is the order of who will be king order. This is the order of line to the throne from firstborn down, down, down. And you see that there, you see verse 24, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. They're superior, they're further in the queue than the ones of the maidservants, Zilpha and and Bilhah. Now what do we read about those boys? Murderers, adulterers, incestuous, idolaters, horrible. And so we read Reuben, disqualified. Levi and Simeon, disqualified. Judah, disqualified. The other brothers who tried to murder their other brother, disqualified. And then you get to Joseph. Now back at 37, look at this, look at this. How would you describe Joseph? Joseph's a funny figure, isn't he? There's a lot of people who would look at Joseph's behavior with his brothers, uh, you know, the dreams, and his his telling of the brothers uh, of the dreams, and I think uh, accuse Joseph unfairly. They might be like, oh, look at this kind of big head, you know, throwing his weight around and showing off that he's going to be this guy. But I think it's an unfair reading of Joseph. I think, one, he's 17. And what do you 17-year-olds know? Nothing, okay? Now, if you're 17, that's you. Nothing. <laughs> but we also know he approaches his brothers without, a little bit later, without security. He's oblivious. You know, he doesn't know what's going on. He's got a dream and he's telling his brothers about it, the poor bloke. It's a hard reading to say that he's being arrogant or anything like that. But it's not just that. What we read about Jacob, uh, sorry Joseph in chapter 37 and onwards is, is both um, Jacob's treatment of him and Joseph's ongoing behaviour providing endless qualification of his kingliness. Let me show you what I mean. You look at the ornate robe, verse 3. Joseph made an ornate robe for him. That's what the NIV says. Now, that's the robe that's been um, considered to be the great Technicolor dream coat. That's it, okay? Okay, so Andrew Lloyd Webber has really the Technicolor dream and ornate robe. To be fair to him, it did say multicolored in previous translations. Now, the original translation, though, is neither ornate nor Technicolor. Does anyone know what it is? It's about sleeves, it's a long sleeve jacket. I can see why Lord Webber didn't run with that as the title. Joseph and the Long Sleeve Jacket. <laughs> now, what's the deal with a long sleeve jacket? The deal is, in the ancient culture, they didn't wear them. The only people who wore them were rulers, those who didn't work in the fields. You see that? So the ornate jacket is a sign from Jacob to Joseph that you are head boy, prefect. You're my pick. Like in that other terrible football, soccer, like you wear a thing around your arm. You know, Gee, soccer fans are never funny. You never got a sense of humor. Like, that's what you do. You signify that you're the captain. This is the captain's robe. He's been singled out. Can you imagine the brothers? Joseph? Him? What's this producing? Rivalry. Rivalry. Has anyone ever seen uh, the television show Succession? My wife is watching that at the moment, and uh, it's all about the Murdoch family. Or it's meant to be about the Murdoch family, uh, and it portrays a family who, uh, like the father, is a media billionaire. You know, he's a multi-whatever. He's a powerful guy, and he's very old. He has a heart attack in the first episode; he might die. And the remaining narrative is about his four children, and that who will take over from dad is the key question in their minds because they don't know. There is no clear succession plan. That's the name. <laughs> And so the whole show is built on the premise of this rivalry between them that the father encourages and manipulates and coerces and, and shapes and molds. And yet at the same point, they have to pretend that, it's, pretend that it's not happening. They have to pretend that there's a loving part of it and so on and so forth. And the father plays them off against each other. But actually, what are they being driven by? Power! I want the robe. I want the crown. I want the throne. The problem is in the show, all four of them have good traits, but also terrible traits. Now, that's the same here, except when you look at Joseph, well, the worst you could say about him is that he's potentially oblivious in chapter 37. After that, well, the remaining 14 chapters, let me tell you. Joseph, he goes to Egypt. He's surrounded by temptation and trial, by travesty and tragedy. And yet, how does he respond? With godliness, relentlessly. He never turns his back on God. He follows God in the midst of the most strenuous of circumstances. Joseph is a godly, good, kind man. Man, come, come with me to chapter 44. We see this on, on clearest display when the brothers return to him 22 years later, after Joseph has been in Egypt. Um, he's now the prime minister of Egypt, so to speak. And uh, there's a famine in the land. His family come to him, not knowing that it's him. They come to Egypt and they're seeking help from the Egyptians who, are, who have money and, you know, because of Joseph's wisdom. So the brothers come, they approach him, and they beg The the prophecy of the dream is fulfilled as these men, they bow down before him as their Lord and they ask for help. Now, what would you do? (laughs) These guys tried to kill him. I'm doing more than sending a passive-aggressive WhatsApp message to the family chat. (laughs) I would kill them or certainly be tempted. Would he be justified in doing so? Biblically, yes. Morally, yes. Questionable? Yes, yes. I don't think you could accuse Joseph of mistreatment if he actually turned around to the people who tried to kill him and put them on trial, found them guilty, and executed them as a result. What they deserve is punishment. And yet what what does he show them? Sorry, chapter 45. Look, Joseph could no longer control himself. Have everyone leave my presence Verse 3, I am Joseph. Verse 4, come close to me. I am your brother. Do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourself for selling me here. Of course, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph reaches them. Verse 15, he kisses them. He weeps over them. And the brothers talk with them. Who shall be king? Who should be king? Who would be king? Let me ask you right now, if you were God, a dangerous sentence, but nonetheless, if you're in the position here and you could choose who has qualified themselves as king, who would you choose? It's Joseph. He deserves it. The others are scumbags. They might as well be Souths fans. Joseph, is, he is Rooster, all he's just the top. He's his behaviour, his godliness, his character. And yet, come over to Matthew chapter one. Did you see that in the second reading? Matthew chapter one is the beginning um, of you know the great biography of Jesus, the Messiah, written by Matthew. And it's always been a tricky one evangelistically. You want to get people to read the Bible, but often if they're reading the New Testament, well, the first book is Matthew. And what does Matthew start with? A genealogy. And you're like, what am I on genealogy.com? What am I, my mother, looking up my ancestors? Get here! I'm not interested in this. And yet this genealogy is no, no accident, my dear friends. There's power in, every, in every, every line. And look what happens here. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now the word Messiah means king, God's chosen king who will rule and reign forever. Jesus the Messiah the son of David the son of Abraham Abraham was the father of Isaac Isaac the father of Jacob Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers Judah the father of Perez and Zerah the twins whose mother was Tamar Go down verse 6 and Jesse the father of king David. Not Joseph, but Judah. Judah is the one who is the descendant of the great king David. The ancestor, I should say, of the great king David. Judah. Now, a reminder of Judah. He's the guy in chapter 38 who slept with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute, then tried to kill her when she got pregnant with his children. That Judah. The question is why? Why would God choose Judah, not Joseph? Well, the answer is just one word. Redemption. Judah... Is the lowest of the low. He's at the very bottom. Not only that, he's not even the eldest son in his line. He's got three elder ones, Reuben, Simeon, Levi. He's a nobody, a nothing. And not only that, the only prominent significance he has is his wickedness and his evilness. He's a man so in love with himself, he would sacrifice his own grandchildren, He would sacrifice his own brother for money. He is the the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. He sells out Joseph for money. And yet God redeems Judah. He redeems him from the pit. Judah's identity for life should have been that he is wicked and violent and hateful in his actions and his heart, that his behaviour was reprehensible, that he destroyed the lives of those around him. And yet God redeems him. Why? Well, you see, my friends, the answer is not found in verse 6 of Matthew 1. It's not because Judah would be the ancestor of King David. The answer is found in verse 16. If you go to the end of that genealogy, what do we read? And Jacob, the father of Joseph, different Jacob, different Joseph. (laughs) Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Judah is the descendant of the Messiah Jesus. What's the significance? Joseph, in his life, displayed many of the traits of Jesus. And it's worth identifying that. He's got an archetype of Jesus. He was sold out for money, he was a faithful brother, faithful son. He followed God and all that he did. He also saved people, he saved people through his actions. When we see Joseph, we're meant to see Jesus. We go, oh, Joseph, he's pointing us to the even better Joseph in Jesus. But in Judah, what do we see? We do not see Joseph. In Judah, we don't see the character and behaviour of Jesus. Rather, we see ourselves and our desperate, desperate need for redemption. The redemption that can only come through what Jesus has done for us. Judah is unforgivable, irredeemable by virtue of what he does. And yet, a bit later in the story of Joseph, he he offers his own life to save Joseph's little brother, Benjamin. He leads the brothers back to repentance at Joseph's feet. A change has happened in him, but that's not why he's chosen. He's chosen to point us to the amazing, incredible truth at the very centre of the Bible. God redeems sinners. God saves the worst. That there is nothing you have done, nowhere you have been, nothing you have seen, nothing you have said, no mistake that you have made as an adult, as a child, as as a sibling, as a parent, There is no way you have destroyed your life so far that it cannot be redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The life of Judah points us to redemption, which is what? The restoration at a price. That Jesus would pay with his life so we could be saved. That we could come not to a temporary kingdom here for a short time, enjoying the delights, and then gone, but rather an eternal one. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, my friends, just two quick lessons, I think, to take from this as, as we leave here this morning. Number one. You are not beyond redemption. Within this room, we have some secrets, don't we? Oh, <laughs> imagine. If we could lay it all out. I'm so ashamed of some of the things that I've done. I became a Christian at 28 and gee whiz, the things I did before then. But you should see the things I've done since then. You wouldn't spit on me on fire. You'd leave me in the pit. You wouldn't sell me. You'd let me die. I'm irredeemable by virtue of my behaviour and so are you. And yet Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead not because we are redeemable by our own virtue but just exactly because we're not. And that means the sin on your soul, the sin in your heart, the shame of your hidden confines of your life, they are on display to God and yet God still says, yes. Come. Be rescued. Live. Live. Your sin has not disqualified you from God's family. And I want you to understand that the sin that you did before you were a Christian, the sin you've done as a Christian, it qualifies you for his redemption. It doesn't disqualify you from his family. It qualifies you for his redemption. And it may well be that you have a a sin in your life that is echoing around every confine of what you do, continually bopping around, bang, 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 like a pinball. If you are truly a Christian, my dear friend, hear me. God knew of that sin before he chose to redeem you and save you. That's why he chose to redeem you and save you. You are not outside of God's kingdom. Bring it to him. Repent, trust, believe. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it may well be that you're here today and you're not a Christian. Your sins have not been redeemed. Your life has not been redeemed. My dear friends, it may be that you're feeling like that because you've done that thing. Whatever that thing is. Look at Judah. You done that? Have you gone that far? Maybe further. It doesn't matter. Your sin does not disqualify you from God's family. It qualifies you for his grace and redemption. Turn to him. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. You can be saved. That's the gospel. How good is that? Now, the final one I want to say to you today is the power of redemption across families. You know What is it that causes all the grief in Joseph's life and his brother's life? It's his dad. Jacob is the epitome of the deadbeat dad. He either shows great affection and love or cold, distant disinterest. He is horrible as a father. He loves, favoritizes. He shows extra affection to some and not the others. He, he, he gives his affection to his children on virtue of how he feels about their mothers, Okay, He is horrible as a father. And yet Joseph, we see Joseph interact with his children with love and grace. And indeed, Jacob on his deathbed does the same with his own boys. You know, as parents, we have the ability to really destroy lives, don't we? And maybe you feel that very intimately. You've felt that or you've done that. We have, we have the ability to shape and mould not just our children's lives, but then the way that they parent, so their children's lives as well. There can be inescapable patterns of brokenness going from generation to generation to generation to generation, yet God offers a way out. He says "You, you do not, your children, do not your grandchildren do not need to be defined by your parental mistakes. Instead, God can use even those mistakes to redeem people. He will use even horrible things you have done to bring glory and life and light. And so if you've done those things, if you think of your family, you think of your children, you think of your parents, you think of whoever it is, and there's estrangement, and isn't that the thing about family? You can love them the most and hate them the most at the same time. It's horrible. You know, the greatest joy and the greatest bitterness, it's a horrible thing. And yet Jesus Christ gives us life, redemption, and he shows us the way out. Forgiveness, love, trust, and a continual fresh start, again and again and again. When I was a very young man, I became a father, and um, oh my goodness, talk about deadbeat dads! Anyway, I, um, I I remember telling my parents that I got my girlfriend pregnant, and this is before I was a Christian, and that was a really fun conversation, as you can imagine. Uh, and I sat with my parents. And my, 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 um, my parents are amazing people, they're the best. But as a teenager, uh, my mother particularly had been not quite sure how to deal with someone as complicated as I was. I say complicated, I mean a jerk as big as I was. Okay? She was and she'd made some errors, she would, she would say openly, uh, in the way that she'd responded to certain things that had happened. But here is the moment, you know, my parents are in ministry. Uh, uh, I've got my life ahead of me Uh, and I'm a young man. I don't have a job. (laughs) It's terrible. I sit down and say, my girlfriend is pregnant. So it's not just, I'm having a baby. It's also, I'm having sex. So um, it's a horrible conversation. So I sit there and I tell them. And my mother gets up and she walks into the pantry and she just does this on a cupboard. And I go, this is going well. And I sit there like that. My dad's sitting there like this. And I'm like there's a tablecloth and I'm playing with it you know Uh, making origami out of serviettes you know and then my mother sits down and her and my father they look at me and they say we love you we love you what can we do how can we help is she okay are you okay what can we do it's never too late to redeem brokenness. Do you understand? Whatever your situation, whatever it is, redeem it in Christ. He paints a picture for us of what it looks like. Your mistakes don't need to continually be captured in your life. But afresh every day, come to Christ. The Judah, man, Oi. he can save you, can't he? Dead set. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are not Joseph's, we are Judah's. You know us, you know our sin, you know how far we've wandered and walked. And yet, Lord, you offer us redemption, grace, peace, hope, life through the descendant of Judah, our Messiah, your Messiah, the King, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that for those who are not Christians, that they would put their trust in you and your son today. That this would be the day they are redeemed. They take hold of the life that your son offers them. And they are truly saved. And for those who are saved amongst us, Lord, we pray for us as parents, as children, as siblings, as husbands, as wives, as singles, as, as broken people, that we could continually be defined not by our mistakes but by the redemption purchased for us by the blood of Jesus and that you would help us um, be redeemed in our relationships the way that we've had our relationship with you restored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.